Hi, I'm Steve Gaynor, and this is Tone Control, Conversations with Video Game Developers. Uh, today, I'm talking to Neil Druckmann from Naughty Dog Productions. Um, worked on the Uncharted series and uh, was the creative director and writer of The Last of Us, uh, which came out this year, too. Uh, overwhelming critical acclaim and success and, and everything else, and I, you know, I, I love the game. Um, found it really interesting. So uh, thanks for sitting down with me today, Neil. Yeah, thanks, man. It's 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 fun to have this all behind us and talk about it <laughs> in a relaxed tone. I know what you mean. <laughs> um, yeah, we're just gonna you know we're just gonna be t- chatting about you know your experience uh, going from you're starting the industry to actually you know being able to lead up the momentous project like this one uh and and yeah your approach uh to to how you you know created the characters and and all that kind of stuff for for the game um so you know last of us was uh the first game that that you were like the creative director and and um kind of the point man on um and so i think a lot of people including myself uh, became aware of you and Bruce Straley, the the game director, mm-hmm. um, you know, because of like the press from from this game and everything. But um, have you know you've been you've been working here and on games for a long time. So like, how did you get into game development in the first place? Uh, how long do we want this interview to be? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess uh, I'll I'll give the short version, which yeah, is I I went to school, Florida State University. Tallahassee, Florida. No shit. Um, I was at UF for a year. I, I grew up in Florida. Okay. So yeah. we're supposed to be rivals or something. <laughs> um, How dare your sports team do whatever. Yeah, yeah. Score more than my sports team. <laughs> so I studied for three years criminology, thinking I was going to be an FBI agent. So I was like, going to do criminology, then go to law school. So I could be an FBI agent. And the thinking was, I'll gain really cool experiences as an FBI agent so I could write novels. That was my line of thinking. <laughs> That's a pretty badass plan. <laughs> I'll give you that. And then I took an elective, uh, a programming elective for computer science. Yeah. And I loved it. It kind of came easy to me. And all of a sudden I became intrigued with the idea of like, wait a minute. I thought this thing was totally intimidating. I could never do it. It's too technical for me. But like, what if I could make video games? Like, I grew up playing tons of games and like, that was my life. Uh, so then I was like, okay, well, screw criminology. I'm, I switched to computer science. Yeah. And had to retake all of my math and science classes because I took the non-major um, versions of those. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So you, so you're a, so you went, so you have a technical background because like, I don't know. I don't know very many like creative director types that actually can program a computer, myself included. I don't know what it looks like inside of that. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, it, I have, because I, I used to draw a lot as a kid, so I have kind yeah. of an art background. I took a lot of art classes, and I would write my own little comic books, but my way in was through computer science. Yeah. No, I mean, when I was growing up, I, I did a bunch of, I did comics, and I, I went to art school, and it was mostly illustration and life drawing until I moved into uh, sculpture so yeah I mean similarly right it's like mm-hmm. an easy outlet for a creative kid is just draw stuff a lot and then when you want to come up with stories okay you can make comics <laughs> and, and whatnot but yeah like so you yeah you had that interest in that that yeah. background creatively but then yeah you, and the games I've always enjoyed the most were story driven yeah like I grew up on all this kind of Sierra adventure games mm-hmm. Space Quest King's Quest Police Quest Leisure Suit Larry 
Uh, and then all the LucasArts games, yeah. of course. I was going to say, I hope that at some point in there you were saved <laughs> from Sierra by, by LucasArts. Yeah, once once you play something like Monkey Island, right, it totally, like, that's that's the way to do adventure games. Yeah. It's one of the first places, I think, as a, as a kid, if you're paying attention, that the importance of game design and game design decisions, stuff like you can never actually fail and whatnot, being, like, an intentional way that, yeah. oh, this kind of game they're both the same kind of game but this one works so much differently and i like it a lot more because <laughs> i didn't like step on a rusty nail and die right. um you you maybe kind of start thinking about that and then like stuff. we're going off on a tangent but monkey island also had this brilliant thing where they used their mechanics for their humor right a lot of times how they manage your inventory and what those items meant uh and then sometimes how they would play with all the verbs that are available to yours brilliant at the yeah end. well there's a section maybe you're thinking of this too where you're in the mansion yeah. you like go and behind you jump the wall, into the wall and... yeah and, it, and the jokes are all in the meta screen <laughs> right. yeah yeah for sure um so wait where were we uh you were talking about you got into computer science stuff oh, right. at school instead of being a badass fbi agent right so no fbi agent <laughs> instead of decided to become a nerd <laughs> See, um, most of us don't get to decide to, decide to be nerds. <laughs> it just got to happen. <laughs> um, so I did uh, three years of that. To kind of, so I, I had the six-year undergrad program to get my computer science degree. Uh, and then I went... Well, then I, got, I worked for a professor, Dr. David Banks, a graphics professor, who kind of like encouraged me. He's like, what do you want to be? Like, I was like, I want to do game design. Like, that's my, he's like, well, have you ever designed anything? Like, No. Like you probably should do that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and he encouraged me to design like, and I, I did like a little platformer like game on my own. I um, worked what? on some other like overhead shooter kind of game. What year? Like around when was this? This was nine two thousand maybe. Okay, two thousand one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what were you? I mean, I guess you were the CS guy, so you were like programming your own. I actually, I, I teamed up with a, a guy that was a much better programmer than me. The platformer one I did on my own. The other game that was more complex, uh, I teamed up with this other guy, and I did the artwork for it, and mm. he did the programming. Cool. Uh, but then this professor uh, also was like, you, have you thought of going to a conference or anything? I was like, no, well, GDC always looked interesting, but, you know, I can never afford it. He's like, I'll send you. Wow. Awesome. So he paid for me to fly out there, and I went to GDC. Uh, and it's just like, you know, you see what right, and you see all these people that you admire. Um, and I want to see a talk by Jason Rubin, who at the time was the co-president of Naughty Dog and one of the co-founders of Naughty Dog. Yeah. And he gave this like really interesting talk about how graphics can't sell games anymore. Like he really felt like they've kind of hit this plateau. It's like now it's going to, it's going to have to be about story. It's going to have to be about gameplay innovations. I don't know. The whole talk kind of blew me away. And I was a huge Naughty Dog fan already. Yeah. And I, after the talk, right away, I approached Jason and I said, all nervously, I was like, hey, I, I've made these games. I'd love to show it to you. And he's like, no, you know, we can't look at anything because then you might sue us in the future. Like, we just refuse to. Yeah. And I was like, well, do you guys ever look for interns? He's like, no, we have a strict policy where we don't hire interns. Like, but you never know. And he gave me his business card. Yeah. Uh, so then I went, I kind of came back to school, but I had his email. So I was like, well, screw what he said. I'm sending him the games anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so I just wrote this long email saying I'm a big fan of Jack and Daxter and Crash Bandicoot. I grew up on these games, but hey, I'm, I'm making these games. I'd love to break into the industry. Yeah. Uh, and he like called me, left a message on my machine saying, hey, we're looking for an intern. First time ever. 
Um, we need someone to help us out with something. Are you interested? So I was like, stoked, excited. Yeah. Uh, um, my girlfriend at the time later became my wife. Like I couldn't stop talking about it. So I, I, but then he was out of the country. He had to do some PR tour for Jack and Daxter. I think it was the first Jack and Daxter. Yeah. Uh, so I tried calling him, couldn't reach him, couldn't reach him. Finally, I called the front desk of Naughty Dog. They yeah. passed me over to Jason. He's like, <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, sorry. We ended up giving it to someone else. <laughs> And I was like, fuck. <laughs> I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. You probably said like, oh. I'm and and okay. that was actually like a moment where like I, I, I could see that I could screw this up and just be like, well, fuck this. You know, like, because I felt like I had it. And I was like, you know what? I appreciate you even considering me. I'd love to keep in touch with you. And he's yeah. like, yeah, sure. Like, because I know he felt kind of bad that it didn't work out. Right. So, and that was it. And kind of. Uh, that was it and so I still kept the email but didn't send him anything in the meantime I applied to Carnegie Mellon they had a pretty new master's program called Entertainment Technology yeah which kind of combines it's a very project oriented uh, program that combines uh, programming and art and storytelling yeah so I was doing that for a year uh, and then the so way that, so that's what brought you to California I guess no that was in Pittsburgh oh Oh, Carnegie Mellon, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, sorry. I, I worked with I've worked with people that uh, did the the program like down here at like UCLA. The, the yeah, so like, they have like stuff came yeah. out of, and then also somebody I worked with was from Philadelphia, and she had gone to the they have, ETC. Yeah, so they have East ETC Coast. campuses now around the world, but it started up uh, okay, okay, in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, so I was doing that for a while, and I was. I took Jesse Shell's game design class and I mm -hmm. learned so much and so much of kind of my design work has been based on the stuff I learned in that program. So that was, I was kind of happy in hindsight that I didn't get the internship when it was first offered to me. Yeah. Uh, but then again, it was, it was uh, getting close to uh, summer break and they encouraged all the students to find an internship yeah. in the field they want to work in. So I was like, well, I still have Jason Rubin's email. <laughs> But the, I, the way I wrote the email, I remember I was like, hey man, I'm not looking for a job or anything, but I'm putting a portfolio together that I'm going to submit to other studios. Do you mind just giving me like a little bit of feedback? And I had some texture artwork that I did. Um, it was mainly like an art portfolio, now that I think mm. back about it more than anything else. And he wrote back and he gave me some feedback on the textures and, and like what things that looked good and what to kind of throw out. And then he like finished the email, it's like, by the way, we have another position open. Are you still interested? And I was like, yes, of course. And he wrote back, well, I'm going to put you in touch with Evan Wells, who's the game director of uh, Jack 2 uh, and been the game director of the Jack and Axter games. Uh, at some point, you'll talk to him. And if it all goes well, then the internship will be yours. So I'm like, rad. Yeah. At the same time, I applied to EA and a couple other places. Uh, what was the other? I applied to some place that didn't. I didn't work out. The EA one actually worked. I got an offer from EA to do an internship for Sims Two, I believe it was, for like a producer position. Yeah. But I was like, okay, they they kind of convinced me that that could be a good avenue to get into design through their production. Well, because at EA, like producers are weirdly much more yeah responsible for design decisions, exactly. and direction decisions, stuff. So yeah. So I had that offer, and they were pressuring me to make a decision. Uh, so I. I finally got in touch with Evan Wells, and he's like, well, I'd like to interview you in person. GDC was around the corner. Mm -hmm. So I got an extension for 
my offer from E8, I told him I'll make a decision after GDC. Right. So meanwhile, I, f- uh, I came out to, uh, I think it was San Francisco or San Diego. I don't remember where they were. I think came. it was in San Jose back then. San Jose. You're yeah. right. So I had like, uh, I met Evan Walls and we sat down and like I showed him my portfolio, a bunch of stuff I did now at Carnegie Mellon. He seemed impressed. We just chatted for like an hour about games like Metroid Prime and Zelda and all yeah. these things. Uh, and by the end of it, he's like, yeah, you got it. And he shook my hand and he's like, I got to go back to the office. Uh, and he left. And then I got an email later that day, like with my kind of internship offer. That's really cool. Yeah. When, when you get the, when you get the email the same day, that's a nice, yeah. <laughs> that's a nice experience. Uh, and then uh, a few months later, I was uh, here in Santa Monica starting yeah. my programming internship at Nami Dog. And so at that point... That was you, a short version of the story. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. Uh, so at that point, it was it was a temporary thing. It was a summer thing. Yeah. But did you just end up staying or... So the, the details of the, of, the, of the deal was it was a summer internship from, I want to say, May to August. Yeah. And I told, when I started, I told Evan, like, hey, if you're interested, there's, uh, I can do what we call a co-op where... You could extend my internship mm. for like another semester, and I could get credits for it. Oh, because you, yeah, you still need to finish it, kind of. Yeah, so I only did one year, and I had one more year to kind of see, finish yeah. the degree. Um, so I started work on. Well, first I worked on some localization tools, hmm. um, programming those, and then as soon as I was done with that, I, I was eager to get into like the game part of it. So yeah, because uh, that's so interesting. Because it's like it sounds like you were showing them an, an art portfolio. But then they brought you on as a programmer, yeah, and then well, they, you ended up being a designer. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, it's, it's, again, every, as you know, everyone has their own kind of weird path yeah, that they take. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so I did those, I did tools, and then like I did some gameplay programming for Jack Three. And while I was doing that, I kind of looked for little design tasks that were just lingering there, and or like something I would play and I felt could be better, and right. I would just try to like give feedback or just do some interest chart things, stuff that I learned in school. Uh, so any, any opportunity I had, I, I tried to kind of get my hands in design. But making sure first and foremost, I, I kicked ass on my programming tasks. Yeah. You got to finish the thing they actually told right. you to do. Right. You got to do the thing they hired you for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as it got close to August, um, I went into Evan's office and just like, hey, you know, it's, it's about to wrap up. I need to let my school know whether I'm going to stay or not. So um, he's like, okay, well, I'll, I'll get back to you. Uh, and then they, I got called into his office again, and it was him and then co-president Stephen White. And they're like, oh, we want to make it full-time if you're interested. And they had an offer for me on the table, and I was like, yeah, sounds awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. Because, <laughs> well, I mean, so, so, you did, so you didn't end up finishing your, well, your degree? Well, or... I did. I okay. just got credits for all my work that I did here. And then, <laughs> so essentially, I just paid for my second year to get the <laughs> diploma. Because it, it is one of those things. Like, I mean, there's so many people... And yeah, you you walked the line where you basically took a job instead of finishing school, but then you also got the got the degree. So that's that's a good deal. But yeah, it's like it's one of those things where it's like you are going to school to be able to get the job that you want, and then you can get it before you're done with school. So it's like kind of impossible to turn it down at that point um, to yeah. say like, oh no, actually I have to go finish my thing, even though the whole reason I'm doing the thing is so I can get an offer right. like this. Well, also, I knew that I kind of got in through the back door. Like, Naughty right. Dog usually doesn't 
rarely hires people out of school and even never hires programmers out of school. Yeah. So I had I knew I had this really kind of if I don't take this now, I don't know when it would come up again. I would probably have to take some other route to get a yeah. lot of experience so I could come back to Naughty Dog. Right. You need a, a big fat resume to yeah. show. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Uh, so that's that was, and then I was a, a full time programmer, uh, and then worked on Jack X after Jack Three, yeah. and programmed. This was the worst thing I did in Dog that almost made me quit. Uh, I did all the uh, programming for the menus. For I I knew you were going to say <laughs> UI programming because I've known UI programmers, <laughs> and they're like, God damn it. <laughs> Uh, it's the, it's the, when you find out a person that loves it, you hang on to that person. That's also true. Yeah, yeah. I I I worked with somebody uh, at Two Camer in who was like it was a, a a UI artist and and he would implement mm-hmm. you know like wire it up um, and it was what he wanted to do and what he loved to do and he was good at it and I was like you know some people higher than me I was like. I hope you guys are doing every. Don't let that guy go. <laughs> he wants to do that, like because everybody else is like, okay, but really, I want to yeah. do characters or something. Sure. It's like, well, I think it's yeah. also, I think it's looked at as like kind of the worst task you can get as far as you know. There's AI and graphics and all these things that are so in a lot of ways much harder. But I think I was the least experienced and least good programmer on the team, and I was like, you handle this task, right? Enjoy, yeah. And I mean, yeah, it's one of those things that is so important to like the feel of the game that actually navigating through the menus is smooth and and Mm -hmm. that you, as the player, you don't have to think about it. But then as a player, you're not thinking about it unless it's bad. So like it's, it's a thankless task in a lot of ways too, because nobody's like, God damn, this UI programming is good. (laughs) Absolutely. But I'm sure it was a good experience because I mean, that's like. Well, the, the thing that was good about it. Maybe it's, uh, we'll see how this sounds. <laughs> uh, is that it made me kind of hit bottom. And as far as like, I wanted to do design. And uh, actually, yeah. I was upfront about it when I first talked to Evan in my first interview. Last, he asked me, what do you see yourself in five years? And I was like, it's some kind of a designer. Maybe it's a technical designer, but that's where my passions lie. Yeah. So with that, it was like, I, that made me realize I don't want to program. Like programming is not my path. Right. Uh, and... So I was still looking for kind of design tasks, and I did some layout of pickups for Jagex. Was a just Mario Kart esque racing game. Yeah. Uh, so wherever I could, again, I, I, I lend a hand to design, and I, and again, I, w- I was getting like depressed with my work, and I, I was like, I got to do something. Yeah. I was like, either I need to ask to move to design, or I need to find something else. Yeah. So I wrote this kind of long email to Evan and Steven, kind of my two bosses, and said, Hey, like. Here's all the stuff I've done over like the year and a half I've been here for design. Here's why I think, you know, I, I could lend a hand to design and like I'd, I'd still be willing to kind of jump back and forth between yeah. tasks, but I want you to know like I want to move over to design. Uh, I was super nervous to send that email. I was like hovering over the send button yeah. for like an hour. Well, and I mean, because that would be so the two things I would think if I were doing that would be one. I imagine you did not mention any of the stuff about, and if I can't do this, I feel like I'm going to have to leave. No, no. Because I would, because that <laughs> that that just changes the tone of the whole thing, yeah. even though it's in your head. And I mean, also for like a really heavy email like that, did you warn them? Were you like, so I'm going to send you this email? No. Okay, because because like, and I'm not saying in your position I would have thought of that, but in my position, like with enough years of having <laughs> gotten emails that are surprising and stuff, I I'd be like, okay, probably I'd be like, so Evan, I've got. I'm going to send you something. I have a lot of thoughts. 
don't worry about it too much, but there's an email. Well, I was, I was debating about yeah. whether to like go into his office and just talk to him about this or send the email, but I was like, I'm so nervous about this and I, I still felt kind of new here and, yeah. just, and so intimidated by the environment. I was like, I, this is the only way I could get all my thoughts out without like stumbling through it. No, definitely. So I wrote that email and, you know, I talked a lot about it with uh, my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, she wasn't my wife yet. I guess she was my fiance at the time. Yeah. Uh, but I sent it out. And then you the next day, I'm like, like, what's that? Have you guys been together since like high school? Have you known uh, since my undergrad. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. a long time. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So, you, I mean, you had that support at least. Yeah, like that, that exactly. at least makes it a little bit. Because she saw me coming home and like she, she saw I wasn't happy with my work. Right. So she understood why I was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So you sent the email. I sent the email. And then the next day, it's like. You're just waiting for a response, and there's no response, no response. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then at some point, like, my phone rings, and it's Evan. It's like, hey, you want to come talk about your email? I was like, yeah. So I go in all nervous, and it's like Evan and Steven. And he's like, I read your email uh, that you want to move over to design, and the answer is um, no. And I was like, oh, um, can we talk about it? He's like, yeah, sure. And I was like, why not? And he's like, well, I feel like you don't have the experience for it. Uh, and I was like, okay, what do you feel like I'm lacking? Because, and I listed all the things I've done. He's like, well, you've never done a layout. Like you've never done any level design. And that's like a big part of what designers here do is level design. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. That made sense to me. Like I could see why you would be hesitant. I was like, okay, what about this? So none of my other tasks are going to suffer, but in my spare time, I'd like to just do some level design. Have you critiqued? Do you mind? And again, he, I think he just, it was an awkward position. He just wanted it out. He's like, sure, if that'll, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Because he's at least can be like, if your work does start suffering, yeah. well, then there's a problem. And right. if it doesn't, then, yeah. So I was like, okay, well, thank you for considering it. Yeah. Uh, and then that night, I went home and started doing like Jack and Axe to level design. <laughs> uh, and like, I fleshed this whole level out. I stayed up like almost the whole night. And then the next day, I came into his office and be like, hey, I got something. And I like, <laughs> and back then we did a level design on paper. It was yeah. all on graph paper. You could see like a bunch of that over there. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, I still start layouts yeah. on paper. I think it's the best thing to at least. It's the easiest ways to kind of get your ideas. Yeah. The yeah. fastest way to iterate. Uh, so then I lay out this thing in front of him and I'm like, he's like, okay. And I start walking him through it. He's like, okay, oh, some interesting stuff. But, you know, your level is very symmetrical. You try to fit it all in kind of this one page so you could kind of feel the geometry is as organic. And he started just giving me really good feedback. I was like, wow, yeah. this is awesome. So I was like, okay, I took all that feedback, like time for round two. And like that night I stayed up really late and like took all the feedback and like did a second version, came to his office again the next day. I was like, well, here you go. He gave me some more feedback. And like, <laughs> I kept doing this enough. Eventually he said, uh, well, you know, we're trying to move away from just doing it all on graph paper and moving to Illustrator. So like the, yeah. we could pass it to, more easily to our artists. I'm like, okay, cool. So I took that opportunity to learn Illustrator. Yeah. Redid that map, still iterating on it. Uh, and then at some point he just said, like, I don't have any more feedback for you. I'm sorry. Uh, but he, there was an artist at the time that was trying to teach Maya to the designers at Naughty Dog so that they could start doing block mesh or gray boxing or whatever different people call yeah. it. So I started working with him on that pipeline of like, okay, how would I learn it? How would, what would be essential for a designer to do versus what would be the passing point to the artist? Right. Uh, and then I did that long enough that eventually Jack X kind of wrapped up and we we're getting started on a project. I don't know if a lot of people know about it, but uh, we did, uh, we started working on Jack and Dexter for PSP. Yeah. 
Oh, I know about it because <laughs> I was a cert tester in Foster City at Sony, and I tested oh. uh, <laughs> the 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 Jack game on on PSP. So that was the first time Naughty Dog tried splitting into two teams, yeah. and it was like the Jack and Axe of PSP and Uncharted, or what later became Uncharted. So at that point, uh, they just relented and they said, "Okay, you're a designer now on Jack and Axe of PSP. Good luck." <laughs> and that was kind of my path into design. Well, that's that's weird. I probably played one of your <laughs> one, one of your levels in uh, I don't know. It was in it was in test in two thousand five, probably. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was like kind of like all these floating islands. I the the for whatever reason the thing I the most vivid image I have in my head is of uh, Daxter crawling through a pipe. There's a little cutscene where he came out of a pipe. I don't I don't know. I I was. Oh. I don't know. There was there was some there was some yeah. crawling. There was some daxtering. I don't know. I it was the first like Jack and Daxter thing I had ever played. Okay. So I was. It just... might have been the Ready at Dawn Daxter game. Oh that, really? That was that came oh, out first, oh, okay. and then we were gonna do a Jack a proper Jack and Daxter. Oh. But it's but it did end up coming out right like the the thing well, you worked on or did it sort of not really. Um, oh okay. So at some point because I do feel like the thing I played was Daxter was the main character so yes so that was that was the that. That. okay alright right. Uh, well at some point you know we're making really good progress on the Jack and Daxter game and I just love, like every once in a while I'd see a video from what was called at the time Project Big which is this other team was working on like this <laughs> next gen PS3 um, Indiana Jones esque title so I was like I was super stoked just yeah. like to be around it uh, and then, like, it was demonstrably big. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then, at some point, we we had some people that because transition from one hardware to the next is always super difficult, and like you're doing development on a game that has is running at like one two frames per second, and it's right. it's really frustrating. And we had uh, quite a bit of turnover at the time, more than we're used to. Uh, but Evan calls me into his office a few months. Maybe it's like six or seven months into this Jack and Dexter game. And he's like, yeah, I have some bad news. Um, you know, we decided that Uncharted or Project Big needs help. Yeah. So we're taking a lot of resources off of the Jack and Dexter. We're putting the Jack and Dexter game on hold. Oh, I see. And we're going to move the resources over to Uncharted. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, they're going to tell me to be a programmer again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but what he ended up saying was like, we want you to be a designer on Uncharted. Yeah. And I'm like... Or Project Big. And I was like, oh, thank God. That's awesome. <laughs> I didn't care in the least. <laughs> uh, and then, like, I was, I started working as a designer on, on Triad 1. Yeah. Man, I mean, that's it. So that's the thing. Like, this, this is something that I know is a theme from my own career and that I tell people sometimes when they're asking about, like, how do you get to be a designer on what you know a big mm-hmm. game or how do you get to to like be a writer on the thing right um and i think like between my own experience and people i've observed one of the biggest advantages you can have is just being the person who's there already when they need somebody yeah. you know because it's like if you can get your foot in, in the door and you can show that you're not an idiot and you get your work done and you show interest in hey, if you guys ever need help with this thing that i didn't actually get hired for i'd really be interested mm-hmm. in like being able to, to give some coverage for that. And then they're they're like, oh shit, we actually do need more design coverage. Uh, there's a, you know, Neil said he'd be interested. Right. You know, kind of There's kind a of guy thing. saying he's willing to work in his spare time. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, I... Um, 
that was how I started writing stuff for for Bioshock franchise was I was you know a designer on Bioshock too and I you know did comics when I was growing up and I had a blog and I wrote and I was interested in that side of the thing and so I was just like if you guys need writing coverage if you guys need audio diaries or or something like let me know and they were like okay maybe we will or that's not now <laughs> but yeah and 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 that was you know early on in the project and I would talk to our creative director just about story stuff just bullshitting about it or whatever and so at the end of production where it was like oh shit we actually we don't have anybody to write all these barks. <laughs> they were like, Steve, do you, you have to do the rest of your work, but do you also want to write hundreds of AI barks and maybe some audio diaries? I'm like, yeah. And it's just like, you don't get hired to do that. Right. But if you're there on the ground and they need somebody, it can be a way to That's especially true of like, how do you write for video games, people ask. And it's like, I don't know if there's like, like uh, the two things I could think of is like either you're there and you can help writing and you can prove that you're a good writer because you're just there and people are always short-staffed and they need help or you prove yourself in some other industry yeah. and show that you're a really like accomplished writer and then like you can t- jump back into games and that's even the hard that's the harder one that there isn't there's not a great like established path in most cases for somebody who's a pure writer even if right. they're like a great novelist or screenwriter or something to like jump in on a team and help with like it, like being part of the team and coming up into writing. Well, I guess there's some right. There's like Call of Duty. I think hires like Hollywood writers to like punch yeah. up their script or yeah, and um, yeah. There's there's a few people you know that uh, that they get in that way in a few projects where it makes sense. And yeah, as like a punch up, uh, <laughs> you know, or a script doctor or something. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, I mean, it's true when people are like, "Well, I want to write video games." For the most part, I'm like, well, spend your time figuring out how to make video games and keep caring about that stuff and keep, you know, working on being good at writing. But, like, I think your best shot is, yeah, to be useful to getting stuff on screen, right. you know, first um, for for the most part. Um, and it's, it's, one of those, it's one of those things that seems like a weird, like, it's a double-edged sword because, I don't know, people are so... Yeah, rightfully in a lot of cases, but you know, people are, are. It's like all the writing in most video games isn't very good, and and it's like, well, maybe that's because it's written by people who are you know designers first or programmers right. first or or whatever. But also the the integration of your people understanding don't understand of how hard it is. Well, yeah, there, there's tons of constraints. Like it's hard to write a great story when also you have to be doing puzzles and gathering loot and stuff but also like I think part of being a good writer for a game is having like a really deep understanding of how story does integrate with 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 the gameplay and the functionality and what those constraints are up front as opposed to well I'm a writer I just want to write a great story and now you've just got people coming in and being like well you can't do that because and we really need you to make it so in the next part of the story you drive a car (laughs) you know I was like um so I don't know there's a delicate balance there, but like obviously, well, that's why I think even when you have like a really accomplished writer coming in to work on a video <clears> game, <throat> a lot of times it falls short, is because they don't understand how to leverage the medium. Yeah, and they don't. There isn't a grounding for how you have to basically use the design requirements as as a tool and as your jumping off point for what an interesting story could be, instead of like story top down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, fast forward too much, but obviously, like you know, 
Naughty Dog in general and, and Last of Us most recently is really lauded for story and I feel like there's some mix of if I'm not mistaken, also Amy Hennig like came up from like programming and design and like production level stuff a, early. She, in I her think she was a 2D career. animator when she started. On like what was it the Michael Jordan side scrolling platformer? Oh, uh, the Michael the Jordan, the Windy City, Trouble in the Windy City. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and and <clears throat> some mix between I imagine having people who who know the whole pipeline of like how something is interesting, interesting interactively and what the requirements are for that and the structure here having a good eye for like, well, this person would be a good fit for actually taking on more of like, yeah, figuring out what the story is and like the characters and the dialogue and all Yeah, there's, there's a culture here where we kind of now pride ourselves in being good storytellers and as a studio, you know, we all kind of read the same storybooks we'll go to seminars to, like we took the whole design staff to a pixar storytelling seminar where they kind of break down their brainstorming process or just how they view stories or yeah. how personal they make them and those are all things that once we do that we can all speak the same language yeah. as far as how stories are structured and it, i think it definitely helps us because um, a lot of time you know you'll come up against how do you make a decision when you're coming against a problem it's like well if you have to understand a lot of times the mechanics are going to dictate something has to concede in the story. Yeah. A lot of times it's like, well, we have this character goal, and that means these, as cool as these mechanics are, they just don't fit. Yeah. And, and you cannot have a discussion about story where a designer were like, well, they could understand why you're making those decisions. Right. So it feels to me like there was a big, a, a kind of binary break um, between what Naughty Dog had done before Uncharted and then like Uncharted was a huge shift in like subject matter focus especially you mm-hmm. know like the the gameplay was also different but um there was there is I feel like you know the, a I think that probably there are a lot of people now that are just gamers I mean most gamers don't really think about the history of a studio but I think even for people that are paying attention in a lot of cases it's like not even perceived that the studio that made Uncharted and Last of Us made Crash Bandicoot. You know, and it's one continuous, like, uh, history of, of, of one studio that, that made all of that stuff. So tell me about being there for what seems like a big leap from, like, we're going to do, like, mascot, you know, cartoon mm-hmm. platformer kind of games to something that is, like, realistic-looking people in the real world. What's interesting, like as a as a studio, and I remember when Jason Rubin was still around, he would always call these character action games. So if you just look at it that abstractly, they're all kind of the same. They all they all fall under that umbrella of character action games. Yeah. Uh, and there is sort of a trajectory that you could look at as like, well, Crash Bandicoot had a little bit of a story. You know, there's a character there and. Um, and then Jack and Daxter, okay, well, the technology allowed us to just get more sophisticated with the kind of um, emotions we can convey with the faces. Yeah. So the story telling can be more subtle or more complex because of that. Uh, and now we felt like, okay, well, we could do realistic humans. Yeah. Uh, and there was also... You, you weren't a PS3 launch title, but you we were, were early in PS3. We had, we had dev kits from the get-go, but it's right. like we always knew we wouldn't be a launch title, so we could spend the time to kind of really develop this game. Yeah. 
And there was also an interesting, there was a passing of the guard in that Jason Rubin and Andy Gavin, the two guys that started Naughty Dog, had sold uh, in 2001, I think, they sold the company to Sony, but they still were contracted to do three games. So they did Jack 1, 2, and 3. Mm. And then around Jack X is when they exited. Uh, and Evan Wells and Stephen White took over in their roles. So this was like the first kind of game or the first franchise that was being developed without them. Okay. Uh, and that's when Evan uh, brought uh, Amy on board because he used to be the game director and he wanted someone to replace him. Yeah. So that was going to be Amy Hennig as he was taking on the role of co-president now. Uh, so I know Amy and then Dan Airy, who was the creative director at the time, they were drawn to kind of these old pulp action stories. Yeah. Uh, and they wanted to do that that kind of game, and they started kind of developing these lush jungles. And yeah. and you can see how that would be a fit for branching off of the yeah kind of like action platformer uh, gameplay that, that the studio right. Was and, and I know they were playing a lot of Prince of Persia at the time. That was a big influence on yeah. us. Um, yeah, Sands of Time was a great fucking game. It was amazing. Yeah. And as far as like right story driven games, that game is still brilliant. Yeah. Uh, so, but then again for me it was cool kind of watching it from the outside and seeing the character of Drake develop and they were looking a lot at uh, Johnny Knoxville as kind of like what if you had a hero that was more like this guy yeah uh, right. that you know could just take a lot of hits and can kind of just brush them off like jokingly yeah uh, and then he slowly kind of as, as, as uh, Nolan North was cast and he brought his own personality into the character that he formed and became more uh, unique than that um, but it was really interesting kind of watching it from the outside and at some point being in it and trying to develop it and trying to um, work on the story at the same time as working on game design and trying to figure out what this thing is and we didn't know what that thing is until very very late in the process because yeah. for a long time we tried to not make a traditional shooter and we were going to do all these kind of lock-on mechanics and mm. it was more about strategizing in the battlefield instead of actually aiming a reticle on, on people. Uh, but it just was not fun. And for a long time it wasn't fun and we're trying to like uh, find it and we tried all sorts of things of different timing mechanisms of when you would shoot but it, at some point it was just like let's just try giving you aiming controls and, yeah. and then um, and some cover mechanics and see how it feels and all of a sudden it's like it became fun and it became engaging and you got like tension that we never had before. Was that, was that initial um, interest in a non-standard um, combat mechanic, was that like somebody's cool design idea internally that, that you wanted to explore or was it like an accessibility thing where it's like we don't want people to have to be good at traditional shooters to make progress through this game? I'm not sure actually it was it was kind of a directive from Amy at the time I remember mm. to try to find a different solution yeah uh, and we tried uh, for months yeah, yeah. To, to do it and we just couldn't uh, and then it was actually I think Evan that came in and said like let's just give you an A mechanic and we only start with an A mechanic when you're in cover and I knew in the back of my mind was like as soon as we do this and if this is fun we're just going to be a, a, a shooter and and it was, and that was fun. Like you did it, and we, and, and it worked, and it actually worked well for our genre. And it's just yeah. like, let's embrace it. Let's yeah, just say yeah. Uncharted is partially a shooter. It's like an action adventure shooter. Yeah. Uh, and then it became like this. We we came up with this concept of uh, traversal gunplay because we have 
these um, climbing mechanics that, unlike Jack and Daxter, they were very kind of analog and you could fail and die, whereas Nathan Drake would kind of autocorrect his jumps to grab on the handholds, yeah. which made the platforming less challenging, but made it much more accessible during combat. And all of a sudden you had this play space that you never had in a shooter before, the way it played, and it became much more interesting. And again, that's something we figured out very late on Uncharted 1, and it was like, we knew Uncharted 2 would kind of leverage that concept yeah. and move it on to kind of um, platforms that would shift and move, and you would jump from one to the other while fighting enemies. Because yeah. you guys have, yeah, really impressive tech on, on like that kind of, on a functionality level, where yeah, like, the player and enemies can pass on geometry that's actually in motion and, and all that. that well, we actually didn't have that on Uncharted 1. Uncharted 1 didn't have any of that tech, and we developed all of that tech for Uncharted 2. And so it was sort of like, it was the the hacked version for right. 1, and then exactly. your team was like, let's actually make it a real thing. For yeah, the let's make it a core system for, for huh. 2. Uh, but for me, you know, it's like I, because I did some writing on the Jack and Daxter project, that when I came in on Uncharted, it was like, I was just like part of the writing team, and now would you know, be sitting there with index cards on a big cork board with yeah. Amy on the weekends, and we're just trying to figure out the structure for this thing. I got to write a lot of first passes for cinematics and in-game dialogue that, you know, I got a lot of my experience on that game. Um, but then on Charter 2, I got to write uh, even more, more than the, the previous one. Uh, and that's eventually how I kind of like ended up in this position where I was like, well, I was the next person in line, I guess, with like knowledge of storytelling to work on our, the new IP. Yeah. And, but your day job was like single player campaign design, like yeah. level design stuff. Yeah. Uh, I was a designer on Uncharted 1 and then I became a lead designer on Uncharted 2. Cool. Uh, and yeah, the most kind of day to day was either scripting some crazy set piece or doing layout. Right. Yeah. And I feel like. And I imagine that internally it, it was just a, a, a result of that process of establishing a new IP on new hardware, having to do a lot of problem solving, etc. Like it kind of always goes with something that it's the first time you're designing a, a new thing. Um, that you know, Uncharted One obviously really well received, and it it really made Uncharted a franchise that people were paying attention to and everything. But I feel like the public perception was that Uncharted Two was like kind of the culmination of mm -hmm. like doing all of that stuff in an even more cohesive way. Yeah, Uncharted 1, like I said, was struggling to find its voice and you can kind of feel it when you're playing. Like I, th I think the story is probably, the, from, um, from my uh, taste, the story is the strongest in Uncharted 1. Uh, but the Uncharted kind of really found like its voice and how it played and its flow in, in, in Uncharted 2. Yeah. Uh, and we kind of knew that going into Uncharted 2. Like I remember working on Uncharted 2 and we just felt like this is going to be so awesome. We can't wait to show this off. And it, what was cool, Uncharted 1 was like, it reviewed well, but it wasn't that successful. Yeah. I mean, it was still successful for us that it made money, but it wasn't like this big thing. Right. And I remember going into E3 and we we're kind of like under everybody's radar and we had that E3 demo of the collapsing building. Yeah. And it just blew people away and it was such an awesome feeling to get that, that validation of something you've worked on for so long and like, it hit. Like, every moment just hit. Yeah. Yeah, and... It, yeah, it must have been a kind of hard position just because you're a, a platform exclusive and PS3 launched later than Xbox 360. And it was like $600. Yeah, it was expensive. <laughs> yeah, the adoption rate wasn't, wasn't very high. And so, yeah, I can, I can see how it would... Did you feel like frustrated that you're like, oh, I made a really cool thing and I, 
I mean, I don't know. I don't want to go into this too far, I guess. But I mean, just being a platform exclusive at all, I don't know. It seems like, um, I mean, I'll say your games are some of the only things I use. I've ever used my PS3 for, you know, like there's, it's good that, that there's something to convince people to get the hardware, but like, I don't know, is it tough to be in a, in in a position where, where it's like, there's this barrier to entry, you know, where it's like, we're we're making cool stuff, but like, you have to buy this expensive box to be able to put your hands on it. Yeah, if I was going to be honest, I guess I would say sometimes you're frustrated knowing like, oh, there's, if we could be, have such a bigger audience, more people could connect with this thing that we've created if we want. But at the same time, because we're exclusive, we get to focus all of our resources on one hardware. Right. Which means we get to really make our engine shine. Whereas if we had to split it between different hardwares, like, there would be a hit in the quality. Right. And, I mean, like, practical reasons, like, you're going to get a lot of support from, you know, the the people that actually make the hardware that you're using and so on and so forth. You know, and we know when we go to E3, we are either opening or closing Sony's press conference because, you know, like, we're, like, one of their top-tier developers. Uh, so Sony gets behind us in marketing in uh, big ways. A lot of times, you know, our game are packed in with the hardware. Yeah. So it's like... Oh, they're like a bundle and it'll, like, have right. Uncharted in it and stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. So from that aspect, you know, our game gets all this extra coverage that they wouldn't have if we were, like, a third-party developer. Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. It's, it's kind of mixed feelings, but at the same time, you know, you've kind of, you accept that, you know, you're part of Sony's family and part of our job is to kick ass as this member of Sony. Right, yeah. And I mean, I know, it, like, the whole, like, you're only aiming at one platform, so I could do some, it, there's lo- there's less overhead. I know what you're talking about, because, like, when we were, you know, four people making Gone Home, we were <laughs> sure. like, we don't have, okay, what can we, what would it make our lives easier if we didn't have to do? Well, optimization. <laughs> uh, so let's assume we're only shipping this thing on PC and you're going to have four gigs of RAM, and a dedicated video card, right. and it's just going to be one big level, you know, and, and just shit like that. So you have the like, whole thing in memory, you're not streaming or... Unity has um, streaming of, uh, like, it has detail levels on, on textures, so, like, mint mapping, and it drops the high-res versions out of, out of memory when you're further away from them, and it does, like, sound streaming and stuff. But, yeah, like, you hit new game, and the entire level, all the geo, everything is, is loaded in at once, because... We didn't have to break it up, right. and it makes our lives easier just sure. to say, like, there's one load screen, and we don't have to save state across it and stuff. But that said, if we had been saying, okay, and we are going to be on 360 and PS3 to try and hit as many people as possible, I don't know if we could have made this project. <laughs> yeah, like, we probably would have worked on it, and then they're like, oh, actually, never mind. We right. wasted our time. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's different kinds of advantages of saying, okay, we have one... Yeah. I know everybody's going to play it on know. this controller, yeah. and they're going to have this exact experience. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so yeah, you, you kind of um, you were you were you were given more responsibility as you went as, as the Uncharted series went on, and you were working like more closely with with Amy on like yeah. the identity of what the player was going to be doing, what the story was, and, and everything. Um, yeah, and at the same time, you know, we we're taking. Um, I was reading Robert McKee storybook. I was I was working on a comic book on the side that had a lot of stories ideas that ended up in The Last of Us. Mm. Uh, uh, I was going to story seminars with like Amy and Bruce. Um, yeah, and Bruce was like a huge part of kind of my career development. Like he was my mentor throughout the whole thing. Like I yeah. kind of looked up to him as like, oh, he's one of the best designers here, and he's like, he came from this art background that 
we kind of just hit it off on Uncharted 1 and uh, whenever I designed something, I'd go to him first for feedback. Yeah, and he was, I mean, he was your, your, your directorial partner on Last of Us. Like, yeah. it seemed like you guys, for the most part, you know, this interview excluded, <laughs> would, like, talk to people as a, you know, as a pair, yeah. and, and you had, um, you, you, you had that, you had the perspective that supported each other in, in what the, so, like, was, was he also a designer on the Uncharted series and, like, moved up into a game directorial so role on So he was an art lead on the Jack and Daxter games. Mm. Uh, and then on the on, on Charted 1, he was the art director. Oh, okay. Uh, but he did a lot of design. And again, yeah. like, even though he was on the art staff, I would go to him a lot of times for design feedback. Yeah. And then on Charted 2... Um, we had our creative director, Dan Airy, left the studio, and Amy moved more into that role, the creative director role. She was game director in Uncharted 1. Okay. So we had this vacancy of game director, so Bruce stepped into that role. Yeah. And so it, it, my assumption, um, from the outside, not, not knowing a lot of the specifics, is that you, Naughty Dog has developed um, a structure where, yeah, there's kind of a parallel creative director and game director and my assumption is a game director is like a design director like it's more about like the mechanics and the gameplay and the the flow of that kind for of the stuff most part, for the most part that's true but we actually on purpose don't really define those roles so okay. there is a lot of overlap so like for example when we were working on The Last of Us you know a lot of stories ideas would come from Bruce and a lot of game yeah. design ideas would come from me Sure. so we're constantly kind of critiquing each other and it really kind of it forces you to make sure story is talking the gameplay. Right. Uh, and those two things have to work in concert. And I assume that it is essentially a parallel thing where it's not like, there's no hierarchy where it's like the game director, you know, like you guys have yeah. to, it's no, checks no, and balances where you're, you're yeah, side if, by side. If we have a disagreement, we'll find one of the offices here and like we'll lock ourselves in the room and be like, let's hash it out. Yeah. And we'll kind of go through every angle of why something works or why something doesn't. And we have to get on the same page. Yeah, uh, and we've never had a situation where like we have to pull Evan in or something and be like, we don't. We always have managed to work it out. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that there's a lot of danger to having any one person that can really be autocratic, just because it's easy to be like, no, I, we're doing it this <laughs> way, and like you know, sometimes you believe in your stuff hard enough that you end up figuring out how to make it good but sometimes it's just a blind alley and it's like so having to having to like justify decisions you make to somebody else who you also trust and who you're you know a sounding board for them and and so forth I think it's it's a good thing like yeah. I mean my my story partner on Gone Home was Carla Zamanja who um, I worked with at 2K Marin and basically she was like my story editor on Minerva's Den and, and she does the 2D art and stuff and like having to say here's what I think I'm going to do with the story and someone to be like yeah that makes sense to me or I don't I don't know like have you thought about this you know kind of kind of thing sometimes and, you just need the right question asked to like wait I didn't think about that okay let's discuss it yeah or just like it if you're also you know if you're in a position where you're like god damn it like I need to get the characters from here to here I've tried everything and you can talk about it and then they're like well did you try this and you're like I literally never <laughs> would have thought of that so you know and and yeah. so it, it sounds like um like a good a good structure to 
end up with something that has been deeply examined all the way along to the, well, to the, to and, the end product. And, and you're yeah. kind of touching on that, right? I think it's so important to, especially where you're writing something that's kind of long form, to have people you could check in with that you trust because uh, I think you just lose the forest from the trees at some point. Yeah. Uh, and it's always good to have people that come in that can you can kind of like pitch something to or talk to them about the story and be like, but this motivation doesn't make sense to me. Like, I understand what you're trying to achieve here, but it feels really a convoluted way to get there. Right. I mean, it's the, you know, the concept of like local maxima, you know, where in your own head, you can be like, I, I know I've examined all you know 10 of the factors that are clustered around this idea that I have I'm not finding a solution and then somebody else can be like well there's a higher mountaintop over here that right. you didn't look towards yet you know and that's where your solution is um, so yeah like you know tell me you know, I want to I want to talk as much as we can about Last of Us because like you know I played it recently <laughs> uh, but also it, it it did a lot of things um, that are again like different for Naughty Dog I feel like in smaller ways, sort of, than Uncharted was from from prior stuff, but in things that were really important to me as a player and as a, as a designer, um, because yeah, like so. So, did you start like working towards were you establishing Last of Us kind of when like Uncharted Three went into production or or something? So yeah, uh, when we finished Uncharted Two. Um, we were already given the heads up by uh, Evan Wells and Christoph Balestra, who then was the new co-president, um, that we're going to split into two teams. So we, we tried it on Uncharted 1, it kind of failed, we're going to do it again. Uh, and the idea was that we were going to reboot Jack and Dexter. Uh, and we being me and Bruce. Oh yeah, and you can give uh, you can you can you can give Ellie the little goggles and everything. Um, That's a that's so, a hard reboot. So That's for, a heavy reboot, yeah. my friend. So for for a while we just stalled. There were like a period where we're gonna give a GDC talk called the Active Cinematic Experience, where we just kind of talked about all the storytelling techniques we learned on the Uncharted One and Two and how we kind of applied them. So we spent two months just working on that talk and not focusing on anything else. Because we we're also burnt out from Uncharted Two. We had you, crunched so hard. You could use some um, distance is important. Yeah. Yeah. So while we were doing that, though, we had a few concept artists just kind of doodling and making crazy Jack and Daxter artwork that was um, more realistic than what we've done in the past. Uh, and some of it was like really fantastical, and some of the environments looked really up, uh, amazing and beautiful. So we finished that talk, and we came back to that, and we're like, okay, Jack and Daxter, what would be interesting? And we just started brainstorming different story ideas, uh, what those characters mean to us? What do we think we mean to the fans? Uh, what would be interesting mechanics that would would, would be uh, cool? Just and we just sometimes just pull up concept art and just look at the concept art. And be like, what would it be like to play through that? We just kind of describe a scenario and just kind of brainstorm yeah. what would be like to play through it. And there were some interesting ideas there, but every time we got really excited about something, it was like that's not really Jack and Daxter. Or like, we, you know, we see concept of Daxter and be like, I don't see that character talking. Right. Like, it probably wouldn't talk. It's like, but that's a big part of Jack and Daxter is Daxter, you all wisecracking through, through everything. Right. So at some point we're like, and we keep joking about like, do we have to do Jack and Daxter? It was just assumed we have to do Jack and Daxter. Yeah. So we went into Evan's office and we said, hey, um, we were just wondering 
do we have to do Jack and Daxter? Because <laughs> like, the stuff we're getting excited by is not Jack and Daxter. And it seems like we're doing it more for marketing reasons because we have the Jack and Daxter franchise. Yeah. And not for something we're really passionate about. And he was like, right away, like no hesitation. He said, no, you guys can do whatever you want. I thought it would just be easier if you started with something that's already established. Yeah. So we're like, okay, cool. Yeah. And I mean, maybe, maybe even from that brainstorming process, it was. You know, like I could totally see having some starting point. Like yeah. if, if it had been like, hey, concept artists, come up with shit you think is cool. <laughs> like, you know, like at least having one commonality, even if that thing ends up changing, I imagine actually probably got you further towards, you know, something. something well, that, it, that, I think it helped a lot of... Um, our working relationship and how we were brainstorming and how we were working now kind of more as equals. Yeah. Um, but as far as the ideas themselves, I don't know how much of that survived in The Last of Us, to be honest. No, no, but I just mean like in yeah. that process, you know, it's like at least you you were riffing on something. Yes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it, at least it, it got us to know that we're not really passionate about this and therefore it's, we probably should not do this. You yeah. Because like, yeah. you need to be invested sometimes three years in the prize, you know, like a long time that you, you better be really excited about this thing that you're working on yeah. or, or it becomes a, a, a day job. Right. Uh, it's gotta be something you can care about the, the whole time. I mean, it was that when, when we were talking about when we were very first starting gone home, we were talking about who the characters were and like one of my motivations, like from the beginning, I was like, with Sam, like the main character, I was like, I need to create a character that I want to hang out with for a year and something. Mm-hmm. I just want to be around them and spend time thinking about who they are, you know? Cause like, yeah, I think that if it's either something that's not exciting to you or not interesting or just like, I've come up with this story about this awful person, you know, like, and maybe it's really interesting for them to be really awful, but you're going to have to be around them all day, every day for yeah. a long time. So yeah, I know what you mean. How early did you come up with the concept of this kind of gay relationship between these two characters? That was pretty early. Like, it was... The, the, the process for us was very mechanical, right? Like, we, we all... We, we, all we, we come from a place where I think it's really important to start with gameplay, and the real question is, what is the player doing? You know? And so, for us, it was like, well... You know, stuff we're good... We've worked on Bioshock. Stuff we're good at is first-person exploration, atmosphere, story, etc. And the stuff that we don't have the resources for is, like... AI, character animation. Yeah, and so it was like, well, we could just focus on environmental storytelling as like, instead of being the sideshow, it's the game. And that's cool. So what can we actually build that is that? It's like, well, we could build like one location, you know, and explore it deeply. If it's a house, okay, it's where people lived. All the evidence of their lives is here. We could make the living room a 20-minute gameplay experience of like finding it. You know, so okay, it would be one family's house. So you're inside the house the whole time. So like, the conflict has to be between the family members. Mm-hmm. Generations, mom and dad, Romeo and Juliet, the kid is in love with somebody they're not supposed to be. Montagues and Capulets is not like a contemporary concern. <laughs> and so, you know, then we were like, okay, well, Sam falls in love with another girl. And the starting point was when the parents are mad about it and it's sort of like more of a... So you, the, know, you knew pretty early on it would be two girls? Yeah. Did you ever consider like two guys? Not really, only because Carla and I both... We were like, okay, here's the conflict. Who are the characters here? And we were both just kind of like, I think teenage daughter. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really any greater consideration besides like, I think the perspective we want to look at is a teenage girl. I, I think that was partly like, you know, 
Carla is was interested in doing like story about female characters and I mean I I am too but like I think that we both just like it was really a snap kind of like okay here's the conflict and we just started picturing you know sort of just like a, a free association like yeah. and who is there I think it's this girl and we just went with it you mm-hmm. know we were like okay so now you've signed up for you're a 30 year old guy writing a gay teenage girl <laughs> and you have to like commit to it and like do the research and like represent it in a respectful way and everything but yeah it was we had the constituent pieces and the same with like the 90s thing it was like okay we don't want cell phones or email it's got to all be like handwritten notes and stuff so tick 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 okay 95 um so all of those like component pieces were there really early it was good because the secret of gone home was scoping and just like sticking to the decisions we made early and just following through on sure. them because we would have run out of money if we had to like <laughs> you know throw out months of work because oh that was that sure yeah you know, that idea of making it all about sending text messages there was a bad call you know like whatever right so um, yeah that stuff was our starting point and we just held on to it and made it uh, made it work I guess it's 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 just interesting how constraints drive a lot of like your most kind of creative decisions. I think that that a lot of people. I think it's easy to get in trouble if you start with creative decisions in in games in a lot of ways, where you're like, I want to tell a story about this. Mm-hmm. Okay, go write your screenplay then, because <laughs> what I want to hear is I want to make a game where you do this. And now, what's the interesting version of that? You know, um, it's all dialogue and everything, but. I don't know. Is it, I, I learned a lot at, at Irrational, and I took a lot away from like Ken Levine's approach to stuff. And one of the things that he was always adamant about was like that, you know, choose your theme and then fully commit to it. You know, and so he was always fearless about like, you know, with Infinite, like we're doing this thing about this society, and it's gonna we're we're gonna commit to showing the ugliness of their racism and, and all this kind of stuff. And that is is something I'll fight to the death for because it's like the identity of the the thing. Um, but it was also, you know, kind of like a, a process of, well, in this time period, I'll do the research and here's what society was like. So the logical conclusion is we need to put this on screen. But then mm-hmm. once you make that decision, it's like now you have to take it all the way to the, right. to the end, you know? So like, so yeah, you, you were, you guys, you guys got the, the green light to decide for this to be something else instead of a, Talking, we not Otzel, Otzel, right? An otter weasel. <laughs> That's right. Um, and 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 so yeah, like you know, similar question. What what was the process, and how long did it take you to be like, okay, it's going to be this like survivalist thing? I, I, or I mean, maybe that's not where it started from. Like, I I, I don't know if I can pinpoint to one thing actually. Um, yeah, did the did the setting come first, or the relationship between the characters, or like after that, we just kind of went into let's just talk about what we want to do as a studio, and we just talked about what if we did a first person game. Yeah. Um, uh, and at the same time, we had we did have a concept of uh, this relationship between this guy and this uh, teenage girl. Uh, that the idea was these two characters would meet. And we'd kind of use everything we learned in kind of Uncharted 2 with the Tenzin mission, the, the, guy, the guy that rescues you in the snow, because that whole relationship is mainly based on gameplay. 
because you guys don't speak the same language. Right. Which is totally just us ripping off ego. Right. <laughs> uh, but we're like, we're so intrigued with that concept. Like, what if you based a whole game around that concept? Yeah. And then we said, okay, what if we didn't do any cinematics? What would that look like? And we just talked through a game that was like that. And, we'll, and you know, we hit some walls. We're like, well, this, that limits the kind of story you could tell. And it's like, yeah. well, does that make it a more interesting experience or less? Uh, what if it was a co-op experience that told like a bunch of really short stories that intertwined with each other? Uh, so we just kind of like went really broad at first just to kind of see why are we so passionate about the way we make games here? And yeah. it, it, it was really interesting how it, it eventually it brought us back to kind of third person, but we decided like this game wanted more tension than anything we've done before. So that probably means we have to bring the camera in. Not quite first person, but much more like Resident Evil or Gears of War. Yeah. So you feel you're at that level of what the character is seeing, and he's kind of obscuring a lot of the screen. Yeah. Um, and it, it didn't end up being necessary. It wasn't quite that tight. I feel like at the end, like maybe it was tighter. Maybe than it's Uncharted, a little pulled but back, yeah. but it's it's way tighter than Uncharted. Yeah. Um, which also kind of changed how he controls, because like Nathan Drake turns on a dime, and you could do that because the camera's farther back. Once right. the camera's that tight. The character has to move slower, otherwise right. it gets disoriented yeah. and moves so quickly. And you have to have the uh, classic quick turn, yeah. 180 quick degree turn. turn. There's a reason <laughs> they did that in Resident Evil 4. I mean, that's just like, yeah, Resident Evil 4 solved so many problems yeah. that I'm sure a lot of designers have been like, well, let's try to solve it differently, and then you like... Yeah, and you come back. It's like, you know, no, the quick turn was actually the right... That was right. Yes, let's just do that. <laughs> uh... And then uh, it's, well, it's, it's, all, it's all fuzzy now because it's yeah. been like three and a half years. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was something about speaking of the controls. Another big difference between uh, Uncharted and Last of Us, just as far as how you how you guide your character and, and relate to him uh, or her, uh, is there's no jump button. There's a vault button, yep. right? Um, and there's there's something weird about the jump button. There's also but there's something that's also different. Um, I guess this is true of Resident Evil Four, but not gears there's no like a uh, dodge button either like a, a quick roll or even sidestep or anything we used to have that until again similarly to like uncharted one we didn't find the voice of the last of us until pretty late in production like i'm talking about less than a year we have less than a year left and the game is not fun and we don't know kind of the core mechanics yeah uh and we used to have uh, an evade button yeah and we were getting close to our uh, one of our demos where we let people play through the tilted building and they fight the clickers and yeah. and it's not fun and we have like a couple weeks left and we're like okay screw it the clicker that's going to be our chainsaw guy from Resident Evil 4 one hit kills you that yeah. was a, a decision we made like with two weeks out from the demo <laughs> uh, the dodge button take it out and also just those two things made like a, a situation that had zero tension to have like all the tension in the world because now it's like you had to constantly watch your back. You had to watch your distance where you could just evade to the side. You could wait until the last moment right before this thing was on you. Yeah. Was it, was it an arbitrary evade or was it like a context evade? Was it like you could only evade when someone was approaching you? or could you It was when they were attacking. Like yeah. You had to read their attack and then evade. Yeah. But then you had like... So we tried different versions. One version was like you could completely evade and took no damage. Other versions you took some damage because like, okay, if you let it get close. Like, but you, no matter what, players just felt like that was the strategy. I'm just going to wait here, evade, and then counterattack. Right. Yeah. Because tonally, if you had, if you like, Last of Us would be a very different game if you had a roll button or a jump button. <laughs> I think that a lot of it is. 
It's about player expressivity, you know, and, and player expressivity in the mechanical space is is super meaningful where it's like we're allowing you to, you know, like say I want to make my player jump, right? Like a player's communicating with the game and saying I want to, I want to be doing something right now and so you can just do it and like you can be Link and you can just roll all across the field if you feel like it, right? But like within the context of something like Last of Us, if... Ellie is saying whatever if it's a joke book or if she's feeling sad and you're bunny hopping or you're like rolling around her you know it's it, I think that something that, that that I think is really useful or or relevant about design is being subtractive you know and it's like it's as important to say what are we not yes. going to let the player do as what are we going to let them do yeah you know? yeah another one of those um, that again we flip flop so, so many times uh, was cover. We yeah. had a cover button, then we took the cover button out, then we put it back in, and we could not make up our mind. Uh, and eventually we realized that when we took the cover button out, even though people are just used to Uncharted and used to all these other the third-person shooters having a cover button, but it gave us this kind of analog space and how you more easily move around objects that it helped stealth. And we said, Again, there was no like perfect solution, and just like that, just worked better for the kind of tone we we're after. Yeah, which is kind of surprising because inputless, like context-only cover, is notoriously difficult to make feel good. But I think that probably a lot of why it worked for Last of Us is that it's not a cover shooter mostly. Yeah. I mean, the player can play some of it that way. But it's less about these very crisp state changes like Gears is, where it's like in, out, you know. Yeah, it's, and it's, like, it's very much your moment-to-moment -moment is shooting, where here the moment-to-moment -moment is assessing the environment and moving from location to location. Yeah. Um, and so the things you give up when you don't have a dedicated cover button is you don't know if the player wants to be in cover or not. So that means when you aim, you can't have them pop out to the side because they might not have wanted to pop out to the side because they yeah. didn't think they were in cover. Right. Uh, you also can't have these really cool cover entrances because you don't know if they want to enter cover and you right. start committing to this animation and all they want to do is run around the cover. Yeah. Now they're getting frustrated. And so it becomes like a blended animation where it's like he kind of stoops down when he's right. near it, but it doesn't fuck with the player's navigation yeah. or what they're trying to do. So you have to give up these kind of cool entrances, but again, it was all for the sake of making a better, tense experience. Yeah. And then also just in a another in a similar way, it the cool entrance also becomes a way for the player to enter and exit cover sure. like a weirdo, you yeah. know, while there's like a, while Joel is talking about, you know, something, you know, that I guess that, you know, cause that's, that's what I think is interesting about, I mean, there's a lot of things that are interesting about last of us, but there was a very specific tone that you guys pulled off, um, that I think did a good job of riding the line between being, um, introspective and, and kind of low-key and then still having a lot of human elements to it like with Ellie's humor and you know with with little turns of phrase um, between the the two characters um, and, I, and I also appreciated it I could see how you came from a starting point or at least had been thinking about like what if there weren't cutscenes or what if cutscenes weren't the core of the storytelling yeah. method we used because like the cutscenes that were there, they all felt like they were there because they had to be there because these two characters needed to have an exchange that they gave you a greater understanding of either what was going on or who they, they were, but were not like 
And here's a special treat. You get to sit back and watch like a big splashy movie for, for a little while. Right. You know? And that, again, every time we've done these exercises and challenged ourselves to say, what if we didn't do cutscenes? It made us realize is when cutscenes are the most effective. Yeah. And that's when you have these really intimate moments where you could show this extreme close up of a person's face. Yeah. And just by the way it contorts, you understand how they're feeling. Yeah. And then if you do that really effectively in a cinematic, once you leave that cinematic and you're in gameplay and you have in-game dialogue, you can now project those emotions. You can right. project those... Uh, the player fills in those gaps. Yeah. Right? Like the, the player... So it's kind of like that Scott McClellan understanding comics thing where like sometimes you'll show like a really close-up of, like a, of, a, of, a, of a sword and it's super detailed. So that every time that sword is drawn more stylistically, you project those details onto it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that I think that understanding comics is a super useful text for people that want to think about how to communicate with with the player. Yeah, um, and the exact thing you're talking about the this the the section on abstraction um, and projection, you know, is is the thing that I come back to the most. You know, where it's like if you fill in every gap for the player, there needs to be a reason for that. And in a lot of cases, if you give them the symbol for this thing and allow their knowledge of how that thing is in the real world from their own perception, that's a lot more effective than just like, we're going to put every little, you know, tick of, yeah. of detail on this thing ourselves right. and tell you, no, 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 it's our version of that. Like, if you can say, oh... It's my memory's version of that that can get you a lot further. Yeah, and you guys did a great job of that, right? Where you just show a picture of Yolanda. Uh, yeah, Lonnie. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and then and then every time I read a description of a scene between them, I could I could picture that person there. I could I could start like I'm using my imagination that gets me more engaged with the story. I think that that's like audio diaries are a thing that it's it, it's you know like like a lot of things it's easier it's easier to get them wrong. But um, if you do them right, I think it allows the player to... It can allow the player to, to basically... The version that they imagine or the associations that they have are stronger than if you were actually just watching that scene happen in yeah. front of you. Because then, like... Then it's on you as the developer to fuck it up, you know, and be like, oh, that animation wasn't quite right. Whereas if they're just picturing it, it is right. Yeah. You know, it's their version of whatever's... Right, we had um, there's a friend of our friend, our friend Mark, who helped us with QA um, on the game. He actually works at uh, Sunny Santa Monica, um, but just on his own time, he he helped us test stuff. But um, he sent us a video playthrough of his first playthrough of the of the game. It was when we were going to IGF, so it was like the first half where it ends, where you open Sam's locker, and it's the mm -hmm. diary about the first time they kiss, and. In the diary, she's talking about, like, you know, Lonnie came over and she was sitting on my desk chair and I was sitting on the bed and there was this distance between us and there was something wrong and, and et cetera. And, and, like, she got up and came over and sat on the bed and you sent us, you know, the, the, the fraps of him playing through. And and the video was the audio diary of him playing and it was, like, she was sitting on my desk chair and his camera looked at it and then she got up and came over and the camera panned over to the bed. And, I'm like, I can see him picturing it. That's awesome. I don't know. So, so yeah, there's there's a whole spectrum there where there are parts in The Last of Us where it's, like, where it's really important to see the exact emotion on Joel's face, like the end of the intro with 
um, his daughter Sarah. Sarah yeah. um, but it was just as important to have those gaps that you never see the horrible things he's done in a 20-year gap. Yeah. Uh, that you can project a lot of that. Or, yeah, you're, you're walking around with, with Ellie and the way that they relate to each other when they're in this mundane situation of, like, yeah, we're, just, we're walking through an empty street and there's comments going mm -hmm. on and you understand as much about their relationship from how they interact in their downtime as when there's, like, a very, you know... Yeah, and then, like, the, the things that people connect with the most sometimes are the most, like, mundane things. We just stuck in at the end, like, uh, Joel high-fiving Ellie. Right. And people talk... That's one of the most memorable parts of the game for them. <laughs> Something that simple. And yeah, I think that that's... It's, it's one of those places where... where you find a spot for the player to be involved in a way that is purely expressive, but it's expressive in the story space, you know, and the player doesn't get to have a say in that part of the experience in a lot of cases. So bridging that gap and being like, I got to high five her, you know, like that's, I think that, I think that is super, it's memorable because it's so simple, you know, but it's because yeah, like where that, it lives in the interactive space. That was kind of the whole theory of this game is through interactivity, through actions, you're not changing the outcome of the story, but you're connecting on, with it on another level that you can't in a movie or a book or anything else. When Ellie saves you in combat, that's such a rewarding feeling and you connect with her in a way that you can't connect with the character any other way. Yeah. Um, it's something... So, yeah, like, I think that there's a common theme with, with people I've been talking with for this, this podcast where there's, like, there is a broad range of kinds of tone within the work from real darkness to laugh out loud humor, you know, or, and, and those things can, can sit side by side. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that's also true in, in last of us. And you, you guys used like a, a, a wide spectrum of tools for that. Like you were talking about the inventory jokes in monkey Island and you guys did a lot of interesting things with the inventory in the game, you know, and like, so the, your understanding of the characters and the setting and what was going on kind of extended through all of the layers of, of, of what was in Last of Us. Um, but one of the biggest things that I want to ask about, I mean, I'm just, I'm really interested in, in Ellie and Joel and their relationship and especially speaking of like interactive versus hands-off stuff, you know, I think a lot of people highlight um, winter in the game as like standout for them, mm -hmm. and I agree with that. And that's when there's a transition, and the player starts playing as Ellie. Um, and I, we were talking at another point. You said that you know you, you asked journalists not to mention that in review, so it would be a surprise, and that was really right. effective for me anyway because I didn't see it coming. Um, so, like, what was the evolution of Ellie as? as a presence in the in the game and like what was how did you conceptualize what the player's relationship was going to be with her when you were starting out and like how did that change as you were developing the game yeah I'll, I'll try to articulate some of it is just gut and I'm not sure how to phrase it oh no that's fine I just wonder if there yeah. were big shifts as you were going along or so I have know. to kind of go back and I've talked a little bit I gave a talk at uh, IGDA in Toronto where I've, I've mentioned this but uh, when I was at Carnegie Mellon we had to do, we had a project where we had to pitch uh, ideas to George Romero. George Romero is a director yeah. of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. So um, 
the whole project was kind of based around him and we would come up with different ideas for video games based on Night of the Living Dead. We'd pitch it to him hmm. and then when he liked, we would then develop a prototype over the semester. Wow. Super awesome yeah. project. So I took three things that I had been hugely inspirational for me when I grew up. It's like one was Eco. Uh, one was a, a book by, Sin, uh, from, by Frank Miller, Sin City, um, That Yellow Bastard. Uh, and then took the character of Hardigan from that, gave him the mechanics of eco, and put them in the world of Night of the Living Dead. <laughs> Wait a second, that does sound kind of familiar. <laughs> uh, so, what was interesting, and the, the story was very basic. It was about this cop that had a heart condition in this zombie world, and he found this girl that lost her family, and he's trying to like bring her to safety. Uh, and at the end, he got infected, and she had to shoot him and kill him. So the story wasn't anything to write home about. But what was interesting... Yeah, they said they, they shipped that as The Walking Dead. <laughs> what, what, what was interesting was uh, there was a mechanic that uh, I brainstormed where the heart condition became interesting. It's like, oh, whenever the heart condition would act up, you would switch control. Mm. And you'd be controlling now this girl who you normally wouldn't see as the protagonist, as the hero in this kind of setting. Yeah. And she would then have to like hold his hand and lead him to safety. Uh, and that was the only thing that really kind of stuck to me out of the whole... So he ended up yeah. picking a different idea. <laughs> All right. And the whole thing got shelved. But that concept got like stuck in the back of my mind of like, you could totally sh- play with people's expectations of what these roles could mean. Yeah. Uh, and I was always there from the beginning with these two roles. Like we, we said, um, there would be Joel and Ellie. Uh, and Joel would be kind of like the, the who you'd expect to be the protector. And Ellie would be this person that you escort because it's this little girl. Yeah, but we knew the whole time we would reach this point where the roles would shift, yeah. and like Ellie would become the protector, and you would take control of her. Uh, and that to us was always kind of the climax of the story uh, when okay. we first conceived of it. So that was okay. So that was that was part of the not part of the pitch, but it was part of the identity from yeah. like the 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 inception. I mean, it's really interesting because yeah, I, I I didn't know what to picture, and yeah, it could have been what you were intentionally building towards from the start or it could have been something I could see at least internally being something that evolved you know emerged as like we've done so much to make Ellie basically like do all this thing that the player character could do we could make you do full-fledged gameplay sequences as no it's actually her, and but, yeah at least for us the way we work those things are pretty separate as far as uh allies and mm. player characters oh really uh, as the resources and everything the animations are all different they, they don't share animations between oh she two moves states. differently when yeah, you're not when you're playing her oh, and uh-huh. when she's an npc okay so that's actually something we knew again that's going to be one of the most if not the most important part of the game that we got started on that really early, even before we had Joel's full moveset kind of established, we started, we had another team working on the Ellie moveset. Wow. Uh, and yeah, we knew like it would only be effective or it'd be only as effective if people didn't know about it. And at some point you right. feel that shift. And again, there's something about games that when you're playing as a character, you empathize with them differently. Yeah. And again, I can't articulate it, but it's just, you connect with them on another level that you don't otherwise. It's a, I think it's a level of like, it's a feeling of legitimacy, you know, where it's good. So mechanics and, and depths of interactivity say so much, you know, and when it's like, oh, I can play as this character, or I can do all of the actions that I expect to be able to do as them. It just makes them more real to you as a, as a player because you perceive this stuff via the, the mechanics, yep. you know. And so when it's like when the mechanics can touch something, it becomes more a part of 
the game and it's not just like well here's the game here's this thing that's like floating around it it's like no this is all integrated and again there's something about it being third person when I tag someone as Ellie and I see the desperation in her moveset and how she jumps on someone's back and she stabs and it takes everything in her power to overcome this much bigger person I connect with her I like empathize with her. I, I root for her that much more yeah. the thing I mean this is this is this is not a tonal question at all the thing that I found is as as a you know, as a designer, as a systems literate, you know, like player of this thing, I, I very quickly realized that Ellie is actually, she has fewer hit points, I guess, but in a lot of ways she is more effective than, than Joel is because her knife is an instant right. kill. Yeah. Um, and an instant kill from the front, you know, like, cause I would choke guys, like I was, I choke guys out mostly and that was how I killed most of the, by the way, fictionally, is Joel supposed to be killing a guy when he chokes them out? Because you can cut off blood to the brain and knock someone out in that much time, but they're probably just unconscious in reality. Do you, did you guys look at a choke out as a non-lethal killer? I no, mean, we it's not at, tracked, yeah, right? But I mean, just yeah. like fictionally. We looked at it as he's killing that person. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's the way if you were to break someone's neck in real life, it would be messy and brutal and it would take a while. It's not like a simple snap. Yeah. But you can't, yeah, but I think it is actually, you know, you can cut off the blood flow yeah. and make someone pass out in the five seconds or whatever that animation takes. Um, but anyway, so, but Ellie is, at least from my play style, which was always to close the distance mm -hmm. and do one of those, she's more effective. Was that something... That was an evolution. But, but was that something that you expected the player to, to become aware of? Or did you find um, more players were less aggressive with, with her? Or, you know, like, did you expect them to... How did, how did you expect the player to play as Ellie, I guess? Or did you have, like... Well, we knew we wanted to make melee less effective. So, for example, Joel, if he connects the first hit, he, he's not going to exchange hits with the guy. He's going to knock him out. Yeah. Um, whereas Ellie... Uh, her initial hit, she doesn't kill the guy, but she doesn't stun him either. So then he's going to hit her right back. Okay. So you're encouraged not to kind of go toe to toe with someone because right. eventually you will die. Right. Though if you can stagger them, if you can stagger, if you could shoot right. them once or throw a brick or do something, yeah. then you can kind of combo it into a, a, a kill while she'll leap at them with her knife and yeah. take him out. Yeah. Because. When I played as Ellie, <laughs> she murdered so many men. <laughs> Everybody was... <laughs> she did not leave anybody standing. Because, you know, I, I had the, the tools to be able to be like... You know, and she she had full access to all the guns in the in the game. So, like, I, like stagger a guy with a shotgun and then just close the distance and stick him, you know? And, like, she was a really effective murderer. <laughs> which I enjoyed a lot. Yeah. Because I felt like, from my point of view as a player, I'm like, this is my moment to be empowered as this character and for Ellie I think to be like she feels even more vulnerable than usual because Joel who is always her backup is out of commission and so I, it, I totally bought it as a player being like she's going to go out into the world and she's going to be like none of these guys are getting a second chance like I, if, I can, if I can eliminate somebody who's a threat I'm going to do it because it's me or them you know so I I found it an interesting position to, to be in, aside from the fact that you're surprisingly shifted to the perspective of like a teenage girl, to also, as a player, have to think about what the implications of that are in what you know to be like this very dog eat dog world. Yeah, and then that was all intentional, and as far as like Ellie's now 
become this murderer just like Joel, whether it's justified or not, you could argue about it. Uh, but then we had to pay that off, and right because the next sequence after Winter is this kind of like melancholy. There's no combat, but you're just seeing all the effects that it's had on Ellie. Yeah. And I think again we got lucky with our structure because in the way that we have these big gaps that take weeks or months to say it's been like this for a while. Because a lot of times yeah. games have an issue where they have character growth, but if one moment I kill someone and it's I'm all depressed by it, and then the next moment I'm just like guns blazing, then I don't buy into that arc necessarily. Yeah. And again, our, the structure worked in our favor. Yeah, because there's a gap where you can yeah. infer what the long-term effect has, yeah. has been. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I know that you guys have talked, everybody is going to ask about it or whatever, but like the ending, right? Like I, so I don't want to be too boring about it, but like, was the, was like, so... Like playing, leading up to playing as Ellie, was the ending something that you knew earlier? Was that like an ongoing evolution? That was an ongoing thing, and for for a long, long time, like a year and a half plus, we had a totally different ending. Um, where I've talked about this before, where, where Tess was this antagonist. Um, mm. So at the beginning of the game, Tess feels betrayed by Joel, and she turns into this kind of mad person that chases him across the country with Joel's mm. old gang. Oh, wow. Um, and the ending was Tess wants to kill Ellie in front of Joel to get back at him. Uh, and she's torturing him to give up where Ellie is and he refuses to tell her where, where Ellie went. Uh, and then you played Ellie a second time and as Ellie you went in there to save Joel and as Ellie you kill Tess. And that was going to be the first time Ellie ever shot someone. Yeah. So that whole arc and the, didn't work for a lot of reasons. Uh, I mean, I was glad that the, the, the characters relented and armed Ellie midway through the game. Yeah. You know, because like it, I, 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 I was a, I mean, I didn't know which way you guys were going, but I felt like it would have been weaker if it was like, Joel was like, you're not gonna do any attacks but because it starts out that way, you know, and I'm like, okay, so this is where they're going with it. But then after a while, she's like, no, seriously, <laughs> I can help you out. And then she just starts shooting at people, which is like, I, th- it, it really hurts when you look at a narrative and you can see you're thinking about the writer because the characters are doing impractical things yeah. for story reasons. And so having her argue to the point where they did relent and let her do the practical thing, I thought it, those kinds of decisions were what you know, like, kept me on board for for the, the narrative and the, and the characters. Yeah, and, and that's, that's where I've been thinking a lot about this idea of writing honestly and what that means. Because initially, right, you have this abstract structure, like, oh, it's so beautiful, she won't shoot someone until the end, and she shoots the, his past, because in saving her, he's redeemed himself. And, and, but then you realize it's not true to any of these characters. Like, Tess... I couldn't buy into that motivation, why she would chase someone across the country. I couldn't buy that Joel wouldn't train Ellie was 14 and should be capable at this age. Uh, and I kind of had a similar feeling when I watched the movie The Road. Yeah. Because the kid kind of felt older than how I interpreted him in the book. Yeah. And I felt like in the movie, I didn't buy that the dad wouldn't train him. Like, right. give him the tools to survive on his own in this world. He's yeah. old enough now. Uh, so then at some point, right, when that ending and all those things didn't work, you just said, what if we didn't have this ending? Just forget that. What would the characters do? And like at some point, I was like, okay, he's going to need to trust her. He's going to have to like rely on her. And that, that actually became a more interesting theme to explore. Like These characters, even though they're so different, have to rely on one another, yeah. sometimes emotionally and sometimes physically, yeah. to survive in this world. And that was the thing that I thought, at least for me, was most powerful about 
about the ending. Like, all throughout the game, you know, Joel has been making decisions and you've been getting him to decision points. And, you know, for me as a player, Joel, at the end, makes big decisions that I totally, you know, did, did not agree with. It was like the structure of the game. Sure. It's like, Joel gets to make decisions and yeah. you get to get him to the point where he does that. And that's, that's what the, the relationship is. And, but the interpretation that I had of the ending is, you know, like, Ellie made a decision and told him how she wanted it to be. Like, she had been like, I'm going to do this, this thing. And, you know, he goes against her wishes and it's a big ordeal. And then he lies to her about it. And the player knows that. And the ending moment is about whether... is about Ellie basically, like, calling him out or saying, like, tell me whether mm-hmm. you lied to me or not. And he maintains the lie... And that moment, at least, you know, from my interpretation, is about her knowing everything, right? Like, she's like, I asked you that because I think you're lying. And if you say that you're not lying, then I'll know you are. You know what I mean? Like, like she has a read on him where it's like, for me anyway, that moment, which is very unspoken and very small and is all through context and, and history, is about Ellie finally losing her trust in Joel in a way that's like that has finality to it right because it's about what she wanted and him him betraying that and so just what you were saying the idea of like it being about him having to trust her and her having to trust him and at least early so that they can survive and not be killed by monsters right at the end it becomes about them trusting each other to do what they would want for like you know, big decisions and what the implication of that trust breaking is. So, yeah, as a theme, um, it's it it was it was interesting to see how that how that evolved and what the the big implications of like a very small you know like dialogue and facial animation moment was and what it what it said about where those, those characters even, ended up. Even the, the 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 idea of playing as Ellie at the end let us objectify Joel in some way right because uh, now like you end up the last thing you did as Joel is this just mow down like all these people and questionable whether they're good or bad uh, and then you kill this doctor you have to kill that doctor you can't avoid it you as right. a player have to kill that doctor and then you get to see Joel from the outside and you're, you're like you're playing as Ellie and her decision was robbed uh, uh, uh and the, the, everything she wanted, right? She talks about her best friend died. All these people died to get her to that place. And then she didn't get to make that choice. Joel makes that choice for her. And you get to view that from the outside as Ellie. Again, it's, 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 it can only be, you can only feel that in a game. Like, I feel like in a story, you wouldn't be able to project that, that much. Yeah, and, I, and you know, until you mentioned it just now, I forgot that you were controlling Ellie in that, the, the epilogue section. Yeah. But it, you're right that it has to be that way. Because it's it 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 unspokenly says like, whose perspective is the jumping off point for the scene that will follow? Yeah. You know, it, it's it's putting you in the pair of shoes that that has a whole set of implications for for where your thought process is in you know the exchange that that happens at the end of it. No, it's really nice. Because initially, we, uh, for that, that walk as well, he used to have all this other dialogue where she would 
she would try to ask him specific questions about what happened. Like, was Marlene there? Why was I still wearing the gown? Wouldn't they like, why didn't you wait till I wake up so I could talk to them? And it's like, clearly his lie isn't going to hold much water when, you, when it's tested. So I was yeah. like, but instead of doing all that, all she needs to ask him is like, are you lying? She doesn't need to ask all the details. Yeah. I think she kind of fix, she can figure all that stuff out. Yeah. And that's the, the, the ending, once we even remove the test stuff, used to be much more hopeful where they get to the edge of the town and they're looking at it and she believes his lie and they kind of march towards Tommy's town. Uh, but as you're like writing it and you're getting closer to capturing those scenes, you're like, Ellie wouldn't buy it. No, yeah. Ellie wouldn't buy it. And again, this is not honest to the character. It's like it, it's trying to fulfill some ideal of a theme or something, but it's not honest to this character. Yeah, it's, it, I, I think, yeah. It's easy to start from a point of like, I have a beautiful structure for this thing, and it's all going to add up to this. And that's like the logical conclusion of the three-act structure, mirroring of images at the beginning and whatever you're, you're trying to do. And then, yeah, you're writing it and you're writing it, and you're like, this is not who these people are. And that has to yeah, and that's, be what you I think that's the most important. And as we talk about it, I realize structure is important when you get started and you're trying to fill in things and there's big gaps. So they help you kind of answer the questions of how to fill in those gaps. But at some point, you have to let the structure go and let the characters kind of control their own fate. Because they take over at some yeah. point. You put them into the structure and then they become what ends up driving the thing. Right. Okay, I'll take up a lot of your time, and I really appreciate uh, <laughs> so you sitting with me because this is a, a super interesting conversation from from my point of view. Um, so, so yeah, thanks again for um, for talking all through your uh, your, your back catalog, <laughs> my, and, my career. Uh, yeah, and, nah, it's been fun. And uh, good luck on uh, on what's coming next for uh, Joel and Ellie and everybody in Idaho. Cool. All right. Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.